Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogansville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. Being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So he's already told them to be ready at all times to give a defense for the hope that they have, to, to make it apologetic for the gospel, to, to defend the truth that they stand by. And then he takes a few minutes to explain who their hope is. This is why we have hope in us. It is that Jesus established lordship over this world, bringing salvation and judgment. Jesus has accomplished lordship over this world and accomplished salvation for us. God is able to provide salvation for the godly, and there is hope in that. And so he begins to kind of expound on that for us. So when we kind of meditate on this a little bit and consider what it means for us to be ready to make a defense for the gospel, these are some words we can look at, um, a short explanation of the work of Christ on the cross for us. Now, there's a few verses in here that are kind of difficult to wade through. They're kind of difficult to understand. In fact, there's one of these verses. I'm going to share with you several viewpoints on that, but I'm not going to be able to give you my personal view on it because, to be honest, I'm not sure I, I know. So we're going to take a look at that a little bit uh, this morning. So this is what he says, starting in verse 18. For Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's just a, a quick summary of the riches of our salvation. For Christ died for sins once for all. That's simply a statement about the sufficiency of Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed once. He does not have to continually shed his blood again and again and again in order to purchase our salvation. His blood uh, was enough to sufficiently pay the price for sins once and for all. I think the phrase that Jesus uttered from the cross when he proclaimed, it is finished, really captures this concept where he says that the work that he came to accomplish, he accomplished in full on the cross. And that work that is necessary for me to be saved and for you to be saved is fully accomplished in the blood of Jesus Christ. Meaning, if you come to trust in Jesus Christ by faith and you come to believe in him and you trust that the blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sins, you can believe that the blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. Because God is the beginning and the ending. There is nothing that is a surprise to God that comes as, as uh, new knowledge to God. He, when he died on the cross, knew of all of your sins that you were going to commit and all the sins that you're going to commit in the future. Jesus paid for all of it. And he says he is the just. It was, he is the just for the unjust. Meaning Christ is just, he is right, he is holy, he is pure, there was no wrong in God. But we are the unjust, we are completely undeserving of the work that Jesus performed for us on the cross. He is the just, we are the unjust, 
but he died for us so that we could be made, so that we could be justified. That's the work that Christ accomplished for us. And then he says, so that he might bring us to God. So that he might bring us to God. And this is essentially what salvation means. Adam and Eve were created by God, and God said that Adam and Eve were good. And he created all the things in the earth, and he called them very good. Everything in creation was perfect. But Adam and Eve sinned against God and rebelled against God, and as a result, the fellowship that they shared with God was broken. God designed mankind to be in fellowship with him, to be in relationship with him. And that is something beautiful to recognize about who we are in this world. We are unique creatures made in the image of God, separate from all other creatures on the planet. But one unique quality about us is that God designed you and I to be in fellowship with him. He wants us to worship him and he wants us to love him and he wants to love us and he wants to pour out his love and kindness upon us and he wants us to rejoice in that but sin has corrupted that and has broken that and has cut us off from the kindness of God and from the goodness of God and from the love of God therefore we were in desperate need of a rescue and of salvation and of forgiveness because in our sinfulness God in his justice must punish us and must punish us for all of eternity. And so then as a result, we were in desperate need of being saved. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the provision for our salvation, the just for the unjust. And because of the work of Christ and his blood on the cross to sufficiently pay for all sins, he brings us back to God. That's the work that Christ has accomplished. We all know what it feels like to be separated for some, from someone that we love. From some, sometimes short periods of time, for some, for some of us, we've lost a loved one that's close to us. And we know that we'll not see them until we enter into the kingdom of God and we hopefully see them in, in heaven. We know that sense of absence and that sense of loss and that sense of longing to see that person again. And this longing to be restored to, into a right relationship with God has been placed deep within our hearts as, as those whom God is bringing to salvation. And we have a strong desire to be made right with God and to be in right relationship with God. And Jesus is the only way to be in right relationship with God. He brings us back to God. And how did he accomplish that? Having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. So Jesus was put to death in the flesh on the cross. And he came in the flesh so that he could identify with us in the flesh and so that he could take the sins that he did not have and did not deserve upon himself and he could die the death that we deserve to die and must die. We were going to have to pay the price for our own sins, but if we paid the price for our sins, we would pay that price for all of eternity. Jesus paid that price, but death could not hold him. The Spirit of God raised him from the dead, and he was raised to new life to give us new life so that the Spirit of God could dwell within you and I, and the presence of God could dwell within our hearts, and we could be in right relationship with God. It's just a short one-verse gospel in a nutshell, the good news of God in a few words. 
once he paid that price once for all for us, just for the unjust, so that we could be brought back to God. He put our sins to death on the cross, and he rose from the dead in the Spirit to bring us to new life. Then he gives a little bit of a visual illustration to this, kind of a further explanation of this gospel, but he ties this into, um, this is not just a New Testament thing that happened. This is, this is part of a story that God has been building since the very beginning. Since the creation of Adam and Eve and the fall of the world at the flood and the rescue of Noah and his family on the boat, all the way down through the birth of Jesus Christ and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation of us all by faith. He ties this into Noah and his family. And we get a little bit um, of that picture right here. He says in verse 19, he says, In which also he went and made proclamation to the saints, now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, I have to read both of those verses together because you can't really separate them. Um, so there's a lot happening here. First of all, he says in verse 19 that Jesus went and made proclamation to the saints, to the spirits now in prison, to the spirits now in prison. And then he makes reference to these spirits that were once disobedient. And then he also says that when they were disobedient was in the days of Noah before the flood, before these, these spirits were in disobedience and rebellion to God in the days of Noah, when the patience of God was waiting for Noah to complete the building of the ark and get his family on board. So it, he, we see a beautiful picture there of the patience of God, and we're coming to that in a second. God was patiently waiting to execute judgment upon the world so that he could bring salvation to those whom he had determined to save. But in the meantime, there were these spirits who were disobedient and in rebellion against God. And Jesus, after his death and resurrection, or somewhere between his death and his resurrection, went and made proclamation to these spirits. There's a few big questions there. First of all, where did Jesus go? And who were these spirits? And why is that significant? And um, so those are really, really hard questions to answer. So I'm going to give you a few viewpoints on that. And um, it just kind of quickly... And then hopefully I'm going to be able to just kind of share with you the heart of Peter and why Peter is bringing this out in his text here. So first option that you will hear, and this is probably, this is an old option that, uh, an old um, perspective that goes all the way back to the early church. Um, the first belief is that when Jesus died on the cross, that he descended into, in some place, some people interpret this to be hell or Hades, the place of the dead. Not that Jesus was burning in hell in this place, but Jesus was in the place of the dead. And in this place, during the three days, while he was after he had died on the cross, uh, he was preaching, to, um, pre preaching freedom to dead Old Testament saints. Or, and he was preaching judgment to all the dead unbelievers at this, at this place and in this time. 
and that viewpoint was held by just men like Justin Martyr, uh, John Calvin, and a number of other early church leaders. Uh, another viewpoint, um, and there's a lot that I could say about that. Honestly, I couldn't say as much about it. You can read a lot about it. Um, there's some pros and cons to that argument for sure. Um, obviously, you know, one of the biggest struggles that I have with that is that it is a preaching of the gospel. Some would argue that they're preaching the gospel, giving opportunity for salvation during that time, which I find hard to support with Scripture, that there is opportunity for salvation once you've passed away. Um, others argue that they, he was not preaching an opportunity for salvation to these people. It was merely judgment, just proclaiming that this is the finalization of their judgment at the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So another argument was um, that this was actually Noah preaching the gospel to those who were being judged by God as he was preaching to them the coming of the flood and the judgment of God that was coming and as he was building his ark and they were mocking him and he was proclaiming the truth of God that Jesus was actually preaching through Noah at the time of Noah judgment in that time. So it was actually happening in real time with Noah, and at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this was a fulfillment of that argument. So some of the people that would hold to that viewpoint would be Wayne Grudem. He's kind of a modern theologian. Also, Charles Spurgeon held to that viewpoint as well. I struggle with that one. I have a hard time getting there when I look at Scripture as well. Um, a third viewpoint is uh, that is the idea that this word... In verse 19, for spirits uh, is the word uh, pneumata, which in most cases in the New Testament is a reference to evil spirits. It's a reference to demonic spirits. And so the, the third major camp on this is the idea that Jesus, in this time when he died on the cross and when, uh, uh, when he rose from the dead in that in that time, he was preaching to judged demonic spirits that were imprisoned by God in the time of Noah. And uh, he was preaching victory over them and judgment to them in this time. So um, that's kind of actually, a, a, that's by far the largest, there's the largest number of people today would hold to that viewpoint. Now, popularity doesn't necessarily make things something true. Um, but I would like to just point out a few other things in these verses um, and uh, see if maybe we can pull out of this what the, the point is and what the heart of this, this teaching is. I wish I could say, all you know, these are false and this is false and this is why and this is exactly what is true, but I'm not sure. Like, I could say when I read this, I have a personal opinion, but it'd be hard for me to say that because I happen to believe this in the 21st century that everybody that came before me for 2,000 years is wrong, you know, so um, I'm not going to be quite so bold, but... Um, but here's some things that I do see in this. One that is directly tied with the time of Noah. Because it's right here in this context. It's a reference to the time of Noah. Um, we do know that there were a lot of things that were taking place in the time of Noah. That there was great evil on the earth. In fact, God had looked out upon the earth and saw no one that was righteous except for Noah and perhaps his wife and kids. 
Um, in fact, I'm not even sure, you're not really guaranteed that his wife and kids actually were that faithful to the Lord. It was just the righteousness of Noah, primarily, that saved that family. So, there weren't many righteous people. Um, you could almost count them on one hand, maybe. So, so uh, there was a lot of wickedness and evil. And there's a few passages of Scripture where we see kind of reference to this exact same concept, where there, was, uh, there were demonic forces at play and angelic beings that were influencing the wickedness of this fallen angelic beings that were influencing the wickedness of the world of the time. And Jude chapter 6 or chapter 1 verse 6 it says this and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode that's a reference to the angels that had rebelled against God and were cast out we call them demons he has kept an eternal he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day so that's kind of a reference to specific angelic beings that had rebelled against God, that God has placed in some form of a bondage or prison until the day of judgment. So they seemingly are bound and aren't free to create havoc in the world like other demons are or like they used to be. So it's an interesting concept there. And then Second uh, Peter chapter 2, this I think is important to, rec- to note that this is the same writer. So Peter continues to talk about this with his this church in his second letter to them second peter chapter 2 verse 4 this is what he said for god did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world but preserved noah a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So again, he's talking about demons that God or, or um, uh, angels that's rebelled against God. He's talking about those that have been bound up and placed in a form of a prison reserved for the judgment of God. And this, this seemingly happened in the time of Noah or right before the flood of Noah. Because again, even in Second Peter, he's talking about Noah. So you see a little bit of this taking place. Now let me, I think in order to really get a grasp of this, we kind of need to move on through to the end of these verses. Um, but one thing to note before we move forward is that ultimately, I believe that what we're seeing here is a proclamation. The emphasis that Peter's making is on the proclamation of Christ. What is it that, is, that Jesus is doing? Ultimately, he's proclaiming victory over demonic powers as the risen Lord. It's a proclamation of judgment. It's a proclamation of salvation. He's proclaiming salvation to those whom he is saving, and he is pro- proclaiming uh, judgment to those who, ha- who have rebelled against God are, and are in punishment to God. And a sneak peek to that is in verse 22 where we're going to land this morning in verse 22 he says Jesus is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him and I think the implication here is that in the death and the resurrection of Jesus 
All authorities, dominions, powers have been placed in subjection to Jesus Christ. He reigns as Lord and as King. And when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, he fulfilled that that destiny of being in, in lordship over all dominions and powers. And so that reference to preaching victory or preaching to the, the spirits is a reference to Jesus proclaiming victory over all authorities and all powers. So in general, that's kind of where, where he's going with that. So if you were going to give a simple explanation of the gospel, I probably would not choose those words. That would probably be a hard place to go. So I think of Peter saying, be ready to give in a defense for the hope that you have within you. And somebody says, hey, why do you believe what you believe? I'm probably not going to jump to demonic spirits in the days of Noah. All right. So that's, that's going to be a bit of a jump for me. So, um, uh, you know, so it is, you know, but Peter's really going for it here. He's kind of saying, look, Jesus is king. He's an authority over everyone and everything, including the demons who made complete, completely destroyed the world. He seemingly is kind of putting a lot of blame on these spirits who were leading people into such wickedness and to sin in those days that literally everyone on the planet, except for one person, deserved to be judged. And so he's saying that Jesus is king and has proclaimed victory over all of this. Now, here's the beauty of this passage. And I think this is, this is what's so wonderful is that we do see the patience of God and we see this beautiful picture of an illustration in the time of Noah and the ark that Noah built. So let's walk through those verses. Verse 20 says, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So God allowed eight people to get on the boat. God closed the door of the boat and then he sent the flood and destroyed everything and everyone else on the planet. And then God preserves Noah by way of this boat that he, he commanded him to build. That boat became their salvation. We see the patience of God exhibited here in that, that God patiently waited for salvation to be provided before he judged the entire world, which I think is a beautiful picture of God's grace and God's mercy. Those people went on living because of God's, the, the wicked people went on con, committing acts of wickedness and violence and horror around the world because God was being patient with those whom he was saving. So some people go on living while people uh, in their wickedness and sin, while others are being saved by God. And that's a beautiful picture of God's patience and the endurance that he has for wickedness and sin. Um, a passage of scripture that I think helps us to kind of uh, see a little more of that is the same passage we were reading a minute ago in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 through, um, I'd like to read all the way down through verse 9. We read the first couple of verses, verse 4 and 5, which was all about uh, God not sparing angels when they sinned. And 
And uh, if you start in verse 6, he says, and you see the judgment of God on wickedness. He did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah. So there's judgment for the ancient world. There's salvation for Noah. Verse 6, and he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So what is that? That's judgment of God on wicked and sinful people. Then, and he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. So then there's the salvation of God. You see the judgment of God. You see the salvation of God. The judgment of God and the salvation of God always at play, always happening simultaneously, always happening. And then in verse 8, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. That was about Lot and the torment that he felt as a, as a righteous man living in a wicked and sinful world. And if you read about Lot, you can read how much he struggled with the temptations of the sinful world around him. Some of the things that he was willing to compromise with um, showed the effects of the sinful culture around him that it, that it had on him as a righteous man. And I think we could probably, a lot of us, relate to Lot as we live in a sinful and wicked world and the pressure of compromise that we live in. That's a whole different sermon. Let's look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. I think that right there is a beautiful verse. God knows how to rescue the godly. God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. God knows how to rescue us and will rescue us. And then in verse 9, he says, He also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. We sit and we watch the things that are going on in the world around us. We see the wickedness and the horror, and sometimes we just have to turn it off. You know, when we can turn on the TV and watch the news, and we can read all kinds sorts of, um, of uh, information about it these days. We have access to any amount of knowledge of whatever horror you want that's going on in this world. But sometimes we just have to turn it all off and recognize that God knows how to keep those people under punishment until the day that he will judge them. Because our heart cries out for justice. Our heart cries out for that to stop. But we must remember that in the same way that God was being patient in the days of Noah, he waited until the day of judgment because it wasn't time until Noah got that ark built and they got on it. That was the day of salvation it was also the day of judgment. So we have to remember that there's also coming a day of judgment. We don't know when that day will be. It is a day that will be a beautiful day of salvation for all of us who believe and for the godly, but it will be a day of terrible judgment for those who continue to live the way that they, in rebellion to God. So he says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the righteous, the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 is another, um, another example of this. We see the faith of Noah. By faith, Noah being warned by God about the things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world 
and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So how did he become an heir of righteousness? By his faith. It was the faith that God allowed Noah to have that gave him the privilege of having righteousness and being rescued and being saved from the wickedness of the world. By him building that boat and getting on that boat and closing the door, he condemned the rest of the world to the judgment of God. Now, I believe what Peter is doing is he's connecting this story to Jesus, saying Noah is a type of Christ. The boat is a type of Christ. And when Jesus, Jesus is offering salvation to those whom he came to save, he has died on the cross and he has the just for the, the unjust so that we might be brought to, back to God. He, put to, he, put him, he laid down his life and death and was raised to life to give new life for those who would believe by faith. But on the day of judgment, the door will be closed condemning the rest of the world to death. And so this is what we see. Uh, the ark is a type of Christ. Jesus is like the ark carrying us through the judgment of God. Jesus is carrying us through God's judgment of this world, and we are currently on that ark now. We are in relationship with Jesus Christ. His spirit dwells within us. We are already being rescued by God. And the judgment of God will see ultimately played out in the last day. But we see the judgment of God being poured out in people's lives day after day. We see it happening in the world all around us. We see atrocities taking place day after day. And sometimes we long for it all to come to an end. But we can take hope because we are being carried through all of this safely by Christ. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean we won't suffer. Because remember, this is Peter talking to a suffering church. We will suffer, but we are being carried through to salvation because Christ is our hope. So let's look at the next verse. Verse 20 says, Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that, meaning that much in the same way or... This is a visual illustration of what I'm about to teach you. Those people were saved by a boat. You are now saved by baptism. And this is what he says in verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now, if you just read that, you might think, well, let's all, let's just, we stop preaching. We'll put a big pool up here and get everybody through the water and we're all good. You know, we just get everybody through the water. Let's go out around town and say, look. Just get everybody through the water. You can escape the judgment of God. But then he, Peter makes sure that we don't misunderstand the illustration of baptism here. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So you can get through the water and have the water wash some dirt off of you, but that is not what saves you. Baptism is an immersion, and he's talking about, and, and it's illustrated by going under the water. So we go under the water. It's an illustration of something much deeper and something much more permanent. You can get a shower today or tomorrow, but you're going to be dirty and you're going to need it again tomorrow. Please make sure you do that. But in this case, the, the spiritual baptism that we receive is eternal and it's permanent. And we don't have to continually go through the water. 
We go through the blood of Jesus Christ once, once and for all. Sufficiently, the blood of Christ sufficiently covers us. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism is something that God does for us when we appeal to him for salvation trusting in the resurrection and the power of the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an appeal. Now, one verse that I feel like helps us to kind of clarify that is back in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. It says, let us draw near. That's kind of that, that appeal to God. We are drawing near to God and we are appealing to God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. That's genuineness. That is with truthfulness. That word means truth with a sincere heart. We're drawing near with truth. We are, we are believing that Jesus is who he says he is, did what he said he did, and will do what he said he will do. That is faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, believing that he is who he says he is. He says we're gonna, we are to draw near with a sincere heart, full of assurance of faith, fully assured uh, in what God has done for us. We're drawing near to him with that kind of heart, having our hearts sprinkled clean. And that's the result. It is the blood of Jesus Christ being sprinkled on our heart and cleansing us from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And there's that illustration of the water again. We are being, and that is a, that is a, the, the, again, like the, Jewish heritage that we have in our faith. They had so many cleansings they had to go through that, was, that were part of their law. So many ceremonial washings that they had to perform, but they were all symbolic of their need for spiritual cleansing, spiritual salvation, their need for being holy and pure and right before a holy God. And the writer of Hebrews and the writer of Peter, Peter writing to his church here, are telling us that we need to be cleansed and made holy and made pure before a holy God. And that can only come through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we appeal to God with a sincere heart and we appeal for, we cry out for a clean conscience. We cry out for cleanness. We ask the Lord to clean us of the wickedness of our sins and make us pure and holy and right before God. This is what baptism is. So he says, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then if you were to read Romans, Paul gets a little more specific. The, the baptism that we're talking about is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God identifies us with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ where he died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And we have spiritually died and been buried, and we have been raised to life, raised to walk in the newness of life. And that connection has been made by the Spirit of God. He has spiritually taken me and you to the cross and to the grave and out again and given us new life. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, something that only the Holy Spirit can do, and it is done once and for all. And when the Spirit does that work for us, He doesn't undo it. it is, if it can be undone by our bad deeds, then it would have to be done by our good deeds. 
But because we cannot be saved by our good deeds and only by the grace of God, then we cannot be unsaved by our bad deeds because that blood sufficiently saves us. So this, is a, this connection with Noah is a beautiful, well, really, I think Peter's kind of saying, listen, all that, that whole story of Noah is a visual illustration of the judgment of God and our need for salvation and God's provision for salvation through Noah and the ark. But Jesus Christ is the better Noah and the better ark. He is the completeness of all of that. He is our true hope of salvation. Noah physically saved his family, but he could not spiritually save them. Only the righteousness of Christ through faith could save his family, and it's the same for us. Only the righteousness of Christ through our faith in the work of Christ will save us. We don't need a boat. We don't need a compound out in the middle of nowhere to get away from all the wickedness of this world. We don't need a spaceship to take us to a new planet so that we can start over with no sin. That's not going to be the way it works. If I guarantee you, if you load a spaceship up full of humans, wherever you take them, it's going to be just the same there as it is here because we will destroy everything. That's just our nature. Okay. But we need Jesus. And that's the message that Peter is preaching. So a few things. He, he lands on verse 22, and I'll give you a couple things to pray through. This Jesus, uh, he, he says, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. So Jesus has brought all things into subjection to him. Jesus is Lord. So we're to be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have in us. But the hope that we have in us is that Jesus has victoriously established lordship over this world, bringing salvation to us and bringing judgment to all who are in disobedience. That is our hope. And I think some people say, well, judgment on people that are disobedient, that doesn't sound very hopeful. That's not very nice. You know, you're sharing the gospel with somebody. You don't really want to start with the judgment of God and how God punishes wicked people. But I think we don't really recognize our need for salvation until we see that we are wicked and looking toward the judgment of God and seeing that God does ultimately judge all sin. Therein is our need for a Savior. A few things to pray through. Um, First of all, God knows how to rescue the godly. I think that's something to remember, to praise the Lord for, and to help the Lord, to ask the Lord to help you remember. Ask the Lord to help you remember that, especially in a time when Christians are being persecuted and Christians are suffering and Christians are dying. God knows how to rescue the godly. And then also know that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And that's our need, that's our sense of desire for justice. Ultimately, we hope that they will all repent and be saved. But we know that if they will not repent and be saved, that, that their justice will still be done. And then also, Jesus is carrying us through God's judgment of this world. I think that is a hope that we can hold on to, especially when we see our world spiraling out of control around us and we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. We can know that God is carrying us through. And then lastly, all authorities will answer to the lordship of Jesus. All the authorities of this world, no matter how powerful they are or who they think they are, 
they will surrender to the lordship of Jesus. Um, they, will, they will be put in subjection. I should put it that way. Not everyone will surrender willingly, but all will be brought to subjection. And I think that should give us some hope, some things to pray through. And again, since I kind of walked through the gospel a little bit, I'd just like to encourage you, if you're at all wrestling with salvation, I shared some kind of weird things in our sermon today and some strange things, but if you're at all wrestling with your own personal faith, I just encourage you to hear what Christ has done for you and believe it. Jesus has done that for you. Cry out to him for salvation and believe that his blood has covered all of your sins. And he will set you free from a conscience that is burdened with sin and separation from God. He will bring you to him and he will show you fellowship and love and kindness and salvation. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.